Back It Up with JB. Hey, Deuce, welcome back for another roundtable. How you doing? Great. Thanks, JB. Glad to be back. Yeah, I'm glad that you're back. Let's dive into a few topics here. First, let's stick with the theme here, the Mets. I know it's one of your favorite teams. Love the Mets. I follow them. Let's talk about Pete Alonzo. He's coming off a one-year contract, $14.5 million in 2023. He ranked 89th in salary. He goes into his last year of arbitration. They're projecting 20, 25 million, probably closer down to 20 million. That'll rank him projected wise 43rd ranked in payroll. He goes free agent after next season. Do you try to sign him if you're the new GM that they're hiring, the new president of baseball operations, to a long-term deal now? Do you get into arbitration, 20, 25 million, play out the year, trade him at the deadline? He's probably going to get probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 years, 350, give or take. What would you do? Okay, well, what your last point was, that's where the problem is. When you said that he was going to probably get 10 years, 350. Right. He thinks that too, and so does Scott Boris, who he just signed. That's right. Nets wanted to compare him to two players. Right. They pinned him to Olsen of the Braves okay. and Freddie Freeman of the of the uh, Dodgers. Right. They wanted to put him right in that category, which would probably have put him in the $175 million area. He wants $300 million from what, if you can believe what you read. So that's why he got Scott Boris involved, because he knows the Mets have been trying to sign him behind the scenes, but there's a big difference on his value. Uh, if you're asking me, um, I think he has all the cards to play because, right. first of all, he's one of the best homegrown Mets of all time. He's on par to have 500 home runs. He's a staple at first base. He's a good guy, clean-cut guy, right. team guy. The right. locker room loves him. And – you know, most importantly, he wants to be here and plays well here. So yeah. you know, you, you put all that together and you've got a guy that if you have to overpay him, you right. overpay him because some players just have to be overpaid. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Guinness, the Greek freak from Milwaukee, they gave him over 50 to 60 million a year on a three year, 180 something million dollar contract. But he's worth it to them. Mets, right. same thing. He might not right. be worth the money, but he's worth it to the Mets. Okay. So I, the complicating factor is Boris, right? Boris is the one that's going to make things difficult for the Mets. And, you know, well, he should. He's the agent. He's got to get Alonzo as much money as he can. To me, Alonzo is a perfect, perfect cleanup hitter. Now, he had him batting three a lot during the year with Lindor. Put Lindor and him together, three, four, you know, put put Lindor ahead of him to protect him. He's over the last five seasons. If you take out the COVID season of 2020, he averaged 44 homers, 116 RBIs. He had a dip in his average down to 217 this past season. But he's a 252 hitter over that period of time. So to me, I would try to lock the guy up. I mean, he's a cornerstone. Let me just interject one point, too. He's also done it in New York, like Aaron Judge did on the Yankees. That right. deserves a premium. Not everybody can play in New York. That's exactly right. So um, if I'm hearing you, would you go and try to sign him? I would bite the bullet, right? overpay him, do it early, 
take Boris aside. They have uh, Cohen and Boris have a very good relationship. Right. Tell Boris, look, you win. I'll give you the money that you need. I'll give you the three hundred million, the ten years. I need to sign him now. I don't want to have a circus next year. That's what I would do because unlike Jacob deGrom, when they let him walk, he's in his mid to late 30s, he's like 34, right. 35. His contract year will bring him close to 40. He's going to be overpaid. He's always injury in it, you know, he's injury prone. Unlike Alonzo. Alonzo, young, not injury prone, homegrown. Right? He's got it all working. So you got to give it to him. He's 29 in December, so he is young. And he's not injury speaking. That, that, yeah. yeah, I looked at that. He averaged 157 games over that four years, right? I, again, I'm excluding 2020 because it was the COVID year, only 57 games. 157 games. The other thing I looked at about him, and it's right to your point, he was second in the league this year in getting plunked. Second. Yep. He was hit 21 times. And, and that's why when he was out earlier this season, I didn't count it because he got plunked. That wasn't an injury he right. created. Right. Right. So I, I think we're in agreement. You try to sign him. Now, what's the limit, though? Is it 350? Is it four? I mean, relatively speaking, I'm looking at I, some I, other. I, okay. So so let me address that. He's not Aaron Judge. I don't give him 350, 360. He's not Aaron right. Judge. Right. Aaron that's Judge what is, Judge is making. That's right. Right. Aaron Judge is on his own level, his own planet. Right. But he is younger. Okay. And although he hits a little bit less for average, I would go as high as 10 years, 300 million. Anything over that, I'd have to pause. I, I don't think that I would go past 300 million because the Mets really want it to be under 200 million. So they're already going 100 million over where they want to go. Yeah. I call it the, you know, the Scott Boris effect, but that's as far as I would go. How about yourself? I'd probably go up to three, three fifty for him. Now, here's the issue: Lindor's making three forty one. Does he balk if someone's making more than him? I don't think he would. Well, but... let's. Well, well, if you don't mind me just interjecting there, uh, I know quite a bit about Lindor. Lindor deserves every penny of that. Scored a hundred runs, knocked in ninety eight, so say a hundred. Batted two fifty. He's, he's in the running for the Gold Glove. I think he should get it. The guy stole thirty bases. I mean, right. he does everything. So. I think Lindor is a shortstop, one of the best in the game. So if he wants to compare himself to Lindor, he can, but he's not one of the top three first basemen in the league where Lindor is one of the top three shortstops. Yeah, but he's a 44-45 guy, 115 RBIs, down year in average. Maybe that's because he was getting plunked a bit. 250 hitter. Not, but I'm I'm already agreeing with you to give him 300 million. We're only okay. we're, All right. we're, we're that's talking true. about that's true. 350 now. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. So we're in agreement on that. Right. Let's move to the second topic. This is something that, that as a Dolphins fan, I've been watching, you know, the Dolphins, the big thing with the Dolphins this season, they have the sixth easiest schedule in the NFL through the first six weeks. They lost to the Bills in Buffalo 48-20. So the knock on them, because they haven't won a road game against the winning team since the second game of last season, that they're not playing anybody that is of any competition to them, right? They're beating the easy teams. They're not beating the good teams. And we saw what just happened against the Eagles, right? They lost 31-17 on Sunday night. They only scored 10 points. One of it, one of their scores to get to the 17 was a defensive touchdown. I was listening to a lot of other people talking, the media, other podcasts, and they're saying, well, you know, as long as they lose 
in a close score, it's okay. And I'm sitting there and I don't get it. Like a loss is a loss is a loss. So my question to you is, is there any moral victory in a loss outside of maybe playing the Bills twice in the season? They played them in Buffalo. They'll make adjustments. So that's the good thing that comes out of a loss or even a win. You're going to make adjustments against the team you're going to play again. But is there any moral victory in a loss? Uh, that's a yes and no. So okay. <laughs> that's the way to fence it. Yeah, yeah. But, but so I'll answer the question directly. But the reason I say yes and no is if you're a young club like the Orioles, I know right. you like the Orioles. So if right. you're a young club like the Orioles and you have a lot of young kids and they won 100 games this year and they have to taste the postseason. And granted, they didn't play as well as they were expecting to play. But that kind of loss, they got exposed to the pressure. They got exposed to the bright lights. And next year, they'll feel better about themselves and they'll grow into their roles for next year. So I think that in that instance, I think it's a positive. If you're a mature team, a team right. like, you know, that has Hill to, uh, you know, you've got some really good players on, on the Dolphins. Absolutely not. No moral victories. You're playing to win. Win it all is all that matters. And coming close doesn't count. That's right. It's not just like, you know, a uh, year before last when the Mets won 100 games, they, you know, one of the top teams in the league, they get to the playoffs and they're bounced instantly. There's no moral moral victory there. I can't say, well, you know, they had a really good season. They're playing for the championship, and anything short of that is a failure. That's, my That's a valid point. I, I looked at it from the perspective of you go 60 and 102 in baseball, but you lose 35 one-run games. You're still golfing in October. Absolutely. You go nine and eight in football, and you lose three or four games by a by a field goal. You can't sit there and say, "Hey, yeah, we were nine and eight. We didn't make the playoffs, but we lost three games by three points or less." Okay, you're still golfing in in January in Hawaii, right? So I didn't right. understand that logic. It's a statement game against the Eagles. You need to go out and win. It's what I said in my six pack: win, win, win. Especially when you had a chance to win the game. You got to win right. the game. It's not. I don't take any solace if they if they lost thirty one twenty eight to the Eagles. To me, it's still a loss. Now they're still in first place because the Bills lost. But that's two good teams now. I know the Bills aren't playing great, but that's two good teams now that they haven't beaten. So they have an easy one next week. I, I forget who they play offhand, but then they go. Oh, they play the Patriots at home, and then they go to Germany to play the Chiefs. And, you know, that's, you know, I don't want to come out of that and say, yeah, well, we only lost to the Chiefs by one point. Yeah, but it still goes in the L column. So to me, there's no moral victory in a loss. I don't look at it that way. I look at it, did you win or did you lose? If McDaniel goes 6-11 and 11 on the season, the, 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 the management's going to come in and say, yeah, but I mean, you only lost like four or five by one, so you keep your job. No, you, you had a losing record. Absolutely. So that's my two cents. I, I totally agree. Good. Let's stick with football. Something that we have talked about over the last couple of days, something that I've covered in my six-pack episodes. I'd be curious to see what you think about this. The brotherly shove, the tush-push. They ran it four times in the game. One was for a TD. Two was on the last drive that extended the drive for the cheat for the, I'm sorry, for the Eagles. And you're able to score, chew up the clock, and beat the Dolphins. 
Are you for the brotherly shove or against it? So you get through the season, they can't do anything with it. You go into the competition committee in the off season. Do you say, let's keep it or get rid of it? Okay. My perspective is totally different. I haven't read it anywhere. I've got a, a fresh perspective on it. Be very interested to see if you agree or not. Okay. I am not, not in favor of it for this reason. The NFL makes a terrific effort to make sure you're going out of bounds, can't hit the guy, can't hit the quarterback, can't hit a receiver. They're so careful. Helmet to helmet, can't hit above a certain part of the body. They're doing everything they can to avoid injuries. The tush push is taking a person, in this case, Hertz, and they're pushing him into the line and forcing him as a human projectile to go and advance the ball. That goes against everything the NFL is trying to avoid because Agreed. he's not going on his own power. He's being used as like, like a bunch of people pushing a football over the, over the line there. He's not doing it. They're pushing him. And if he ever got injured, say, while they're pushing him, and yet they continue to push him, he could get seriously, seriously hurt, like a neck injury. Because if you're doing it yourself and you get injured, you can stop. If they're pushing him, he can't stop. He'll continue right. to get injured. And that Joe Theismann injury comes to mind where it could have catastrophic consequences. So for that reason, you know, for me, it's a pretty clear-cut reason. I'd be anxious to hear what you think of that perspective. I, I totally agree with you. That's one of my points, you know, the injury factor. You're right. They, they, they go to a lot of lengths in football to avoid injuries. You've got 11 guys on each side going at each other, and these aren't guys that are weighing 100 pounds. You know how much they weigh, how much brute force they have, the drive they have. You get caught under that pile. I, I I just I didn't like it last year in the playoffs, and I talked to Futures about it on one of our podcasts back in the NFL playoffs last season. I still don't like it. I totally agree with you. You had Tom Brady, who was the master at the quarterback sneak. The guy was, what, 6'3", 6'4", 200 pounds, and he was able to do it. Yep. Hertz can do it on his own. This guy supposedly, you know, squats four, five, 600 pounds. Right. In my opinion, if you're going to allow the tush push and be – push from behind, pushing the quarterback, then how come we don't allow on a PAT or a field goal the guy to jump on the guy's back to get more height? I, I think it's you a know, very valid comparison. I totally agree. And look, Hurts at the end of the day will get that yard, that half yard, no matter what. He's going to get it. So why risk it more and allow them to push? I'm against it. I think they should stop it. That's my opinion. It looks sounds like we're in – Pretty good agreement on that. Absolutely. All right, so we've had few sports questions. We've had two other roundtable episodes. We covered a lot of sports there. Let, let, let's do a right turn here. Let's get out of sports. Let's get, let's get into the entertainment industry, all right? Sure. I was reading the other day a listing of lead singers and bands, and, and they were ranking them, you know, 50, top 50, top 100. And I just started reading it. And I, I know I texted you about it. And let, let's table this question. We did a Mount Rushmore in basketball. Let's do a Mount Rushmore for lead singers of bands, okay? Give me your top four lead people. I'll, I'll call it people because you could have Blondie with a female. You could have, you know, another band with a male um, for bands. Give me your Mount Rushmore. Okay, so let me, let me, let me 
break it down to how I'm classifying it. To me, to be a, a top front man, you have to be as recognized and iconic as the band itself to be on that list. Okay. So when people hear the front man, it's interchangeable with the band. Right. So my four have that as the criteria. So number one, okay. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, because when you think of Mick Jagger or the Rolling Stones, it's one and the same. Okay. So he would be one. Number okay. two, Jim Morrison of the Doors. When you okay. hear Jim Morrison and the Doors, they're one and the same, interchangeable. Right. And legend. And oh, and one last point: they have to be legendary. Okay. Um, third one would be Roger Daltrey of the Who. Okay. When you think Roger Daltrey, he is the Who. That's right. one and the same. And then fourth, Bono and U2, because obviously U2 is iconic and then he is you too so those would be my four now are there certainly more yes but those would be the four that i would pick very anxious to hear yours so i'm looking at that list and i sort of mirror it which is interesting but you know what i got out of your list what three of them are 60s bands really when you think about it right oh i didn't even okay you have a british invasion with british invasion with jagger and daltrey for some, you know, at some point, um, Morrison, which is a sixties band. Then you got Bono at U2 that came out of live aid, right. And the eighties, yep. that's where they really cemented themselves with, yep. I, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to watch it, but if you go on YouTube and watch their live aid performance where they did like a 10 to 12 minute version of the song bad, it's just incredible. It's really is. It's really incredible. So do you rank them in that order or was no particular order? Um, I would rank them in that order. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. So I have two that are not on your list. Let me start with the first one because it overlaps your list, right? I couldn't decide one or the other. Daltrey or Jagger. I couldn't decide which one. So I think I'd go Daltrey only because I'm a Beatles guy. and I'm not yep. a huge Stones guy. Yep. But that being said, Jagger's one of the best all time, right? That's yep. number one. Number two, which I'm surprised you didn't say, Freddie Mercury. Do you know it's funny? Freddie Mercury was the honorable mention. He was on the borderline. <laughs> okay. I, in fact, he it was between him and Bono. Actually, it's funny you should say that. But yes, okay. it was neck and neck. Okay. My third one, and this is not in any particular order. I'm just giving yep. you my list. Uh, Jim Morrison. I agree with you on Morrison. That, and just... He oozed the doors. He oozed the oh, 60s. Yeah. Total front man. I was actually reading an article about him. You know when he went on the Ed Sullivan show and he, he was singing Light My Fire, they didn't want him to sing Girl, We Couldn't Get Any Higher? Yep. Before that, they were waiting in the, in, the, in the green room, whatever you want to call it, for like an hour to go on. And there was a comedian on the same episode that was nervously getting ready to go on national TV and do his act. Do you know who the comedian was? I just read this the other day. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Who is it? Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, I would never have guessed that. How funny is that? That's How funny. funny. Is that? And then number four, David Lee Roth. I think David Lee Roth's a great pick. I thought about him, but, you know, Mercury was the one that was really close to breaking my four. Okay. But uh, I thought of Roth, though. Okay, so us being business people do you know the yep. brown m&m story with him uh no 
Okay. So he was always considered eccentric, obviously, right? David Lee Roth. And you know how you have all these riders, they go into a city and they have to have 15 Evian bottles. They have the, in their contract, they have the, well, one of the things they used to do, the, the, the band Van Halen, he's actually a pretty smart businessman, David Lee Roth. He would say, I want a bowl of M&Ms and I don't want any brown M&Ms. And everyone used to think that it was just him being quirky you know, band demands, things like that. But they would have like eight, 900 lights in their show. So it was very technical and what they had to do to set up. So he would get, it would be a 50 page contract. And in the middle of it on page 27, paragraph three, line seven, all his demands, he'd say, I want a bowl in our, in our uh, dressing room, M&Ms, no brown M&Ms. And he would walk in and he would look at that thing first. He would look at that bowl. And if he saw a brown M&M in there, he knew they didn't look at the contract. He didn't. So there was things missing that he would have to look at and address. Pretty smart. That is, I have not heard. That is amazing. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a yeah, great story. So, so I think we're in pretty good uh, agreement here. I, I'm not a big U2 fan, but I get why he would be on there. Are you a big U2 fan? Uh, no, 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 no. I, oh, I really? just know that he, he just is iconic from a front man perspective. I had interesting. I had other artists. I'm looking at my list here, like honorable mentions. I had Steve Perry. I actually had Bono on the list as an oh, honorable mention. I had Axl Rose. I couldn't do anything from the Beatles. Oh, I had, I had Axl Rose on my short list as well. And also Kurt Cobain. I had Cobain too. So Futures will be happy about that. Steven Tyler, Robert Plant. Yep. You know, all and, these oh, good you know, guys. another one that was on my short list, Ozzy Osbourne. I, I thought Black about Sabbath. him. Yeah, yep. I thought about him. Yep. So so what's the last concert you attended? I saw one of your, well, you said one of your favorite bands was the Beatles. So I'm jolly on the spot with uh, Paul McCartney. I saw him at Yankee Stadium. Did you really? How was that? Yeah, I went with my wife. It was unbelievable. He do a lot. He do a lot of mix of Beatles and, and solo. It was it was it was great. And then Billy Joel came on at the end, so it was really fun. It was great. My my last concert. So I'm a I'm a Beatles, Mellencamp, Petty, Seeger. Those are my top four. Yep. And I saw Seeger. I think it was 2019, the year, but the summer, June before COVID hit the best concert I've ever been to. And he was 73 years old. He got on stage and I swear you thought you were listening to a, a greatest hits CD. And he just wow. played, he just played. There was no gimmicks and the crowd, it was at the PNC bank art center. Nice. Most, the, the most fans attending I've ever seen in that place. Incredible. Nice. What, what a show. Absolutely nice. incredible. What's the one band or artist that you that you wish you saw but never did i wanted to see the rolling stones got close a couple of times but it, the schedules just didn't line up okay i think for me because of the four that i told you about i'm obviously i couldn't see the beatles and i didn't i never for some reason went to see mccartney i should have was tom petty oh he's one. one of my favorites that's the one i wanted to see and i just i never did and i always regretted not going I love Tom Petty and, you know, it's sad he's gone, but I just absolutely love him. Okay. One more thing I wanted to talk to you about um, before we end the show. It's been a great, great episode, covered a lot of stuff. Appreciate you getting on on round table three. Here's two things that two shows that we have talked about. Well, one's a show, one's a movie. So, you know, 
Big Bang Theory, right? Yep. You're a watcher. Okay. I love that show as well. Sheldon's girlfriend's name is Amy Farah Fowler. So Amy Fowler is her name. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what my favorite all-time movie, all-time Western movie is? Well, you said Lawman was one of your favorite sitcoms, but well, I don't that know. Was a t that, that's a TV show, movies, though. Right, right. Okay, what so it's High Noon. Okay. High Noon. So in the movie, Will Kane is played by Gary Cooper, gets yep. married in the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. Grace Kelly plays his wife, mm -hmm. Princess of Monaco, I think she wound up being. Do you know yeah. what her name is in the movie? Amy uh, Fowler. Is that true? Yeah, it, I was watching it the other night and it came up, Amy Fowler. I couldn't believe it. I knew that you liked both. And I thought, I thought I, and, and, you know, and, I'm, and I'm very familiar with your movie, High Noon. That's your favorite Western movie? That's my favorite all-time Western movie. Nice. Yeah, it's just such a great movie. It was very controversial at the time. Did you know that? No, why? For what John reason? Wayne, John Wayne hated it. Why? Because he said that no lawman, no cowboy lawman like Gary Cooper, because he showed he showed vulnerability in that one scene where he's right before he's ready to take on the four guys and he couldn't get anybody to join his posse. He sort of breaks down and is having a moment there where he's having he showed weakness and they I, I don't I don't think that's weakness. I think that's common sense. Yeah, no, it is common sense. But in John Wayne's eyes and in, in Hollywood with the with the West and with lawmen, you, sh you can't show weakness. And that's what he per he perceived it to be that. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I just the whole well, just theme as of an, that. Just as an aside, John Wayne had a problem with Clint Eastwood as a Western figure, too. So did he really? I didn't know. Yes, that. He, he was not happy with Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood is iconic in a Western role. Right. Right. What was his issue? Do you know? He thought that um, his Western movies, this is Clint Eastwood, were a little too edgy. So I can and, see and, that. And they, they did have an edge to them, but that was Clint Eastwood's style. Right. Uh, you know, everybody had a style. I happen to like Clint Eastwood a lot. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Anything else you want to cover? Uh, this has been great. Thanks for inviting me. It really has. Roundtable three comes to a conclusion. Deuce, it's been great. Enjoyed it. Let's do it again soon. A lot of fun. Thanks again. Take care. Take okay. care, everybody. Bye-bye. Back it up with JB.